0: the woman as a spiritual person, we're going to look at what she believes and how her life reflects her beliefs. How does that operate in her daily life? Often if you ask a woman what she believes, when I've asked my friend, what do I belie- you believe? I believe in God. I believe in one God. They can't articulate or they don't make a practice of articulating statements of faith. There is a creed and there are statements about what Islam is about but the way Islam is understood in an oral culture is not by reciting all these points and definitions so very rarely would you get that kind of definition Uh, if you're with university students they may try to articulate it better for you and outline it for you, or if they are a teacher, but just a person, a normal friend that I have, she would say, I believe in God. And so, and that's important, because the basic concept that I think we looked at right at the beginning, Islam is a monotheistic faith. Uh, it's not atheism, it's based on God. A belief in one God. And of course, the statement of faith is given in the Quran quite clearly in Sura 112, that he is absolute, mighty, and he has no partners. He begetteth not, nor is he begotten. And so she would know perhaps this Sura if she had memorized it in Arabic. But you are born a Muslim. She is a Moroccan. To be a Moroccan is to be a Muslim. I remember a friend who was doing her PhD on women writers, Arabic women writers. And I was on this committee to examine the essays and the things she had written. And there was not one Christian Arabic speaker included in her paper. I said, but you have left out a lot of uh, Arabic women who wrote in Arabic Early days, long before some of the Muslim women wrote in Arabic, and you have not included them, she said they are not Muslims. Uh, Moroccans and Algerians are uh, to be born an Algerian means you're born a Muslim. To be born a Moroccan. The concept of identity of Muslim and nationality is the same thing. Uh, and so they do not see any difference in the identity. You are born a Muslim. And quite often they stumble over the idea about our identity. They would think that Christians are born Christians and Jewish people are born Jews. And that may be true because Jewishness has a nationality. But it is not true of Christians. And then, of course, they would say that pagans and other people are born a pagan. But they would say that is the parents who change the child's identity to be some other belief. And so they would not necessarily speak of it as a statement of creed, but they believe in God. And when the baby is born, the parents or the midwife who was ever there whispers in the baby's ear that there is one God and Muhammad is his prophet. And that quite often they know and talk about God again using the 99 names. The 99 names are memorized through a rosary. The rosary usually has 99 beads, but sometimes it's one of 33 beads and you say it three times in order to include all the 99 names. So God is God and he is never a man or would he become a man? He has no partners, therefore there is no son. He is one, a unitary sense of one. There's also a belief in angels and this is quite often important to women but they would talk about Gabriel who's very important because Gabriel is the one who brought the Quran but another thing that's talked about is Israel who is the angel of death. So in the family when there's a question of a member of the family dying everyone is talking about the angel of death who came to question the person who died whether he's still a Muslim at death or not. When I was living in my family, friends, in Algeria, granny was dying while I was living there. And it happened during the month of Ramadan. And if you touch or be with an unclean person who is dying, you can't fast. And so none of the members of the family who were fasting wanted to stay with granny, So since I wasn't fasting and was already unclean, I was qualified to stay with Granny while she was dying. It was a rather strange kind of setup. But everyone was conscious that the angel of death would come, and we had to get and find someone who was Muslim who could come to be there to help Granny make sure that she died a Muslim. Since I wasn't really eligible to do that. But another problem that's very real to many of my women friends is they're aware of evil angels and the fear of evil spirits. So every Friday when the mom of the house where I was staying would clean, she would clean the house and in each corner of the house she would light candles in all the points and corners in order to cleanse the house from evil spirits. Often she would go to visit shrines to pray and get the holy man at the shrine to pray for the house. There's a very real sense of evil spirits and a fear of them. We had young people come to have uh, sleepovers and some of the young girls who were Christian brought some of their Muslim friends for school for a, a, a weekend at my home. And the girls all had a big party and a sleepover and talked most of the night, I'm I'm sure, and had a great time. But the next morning when I got up to try to organize a bit of breakfast, one of the girls who was a friend of a Christian came in the kitchen and said, oh, I love staying in your house. I would like to stay here forever. It is very wonderful. And I said, but this is a very small place and it's doesn't have any of the luxuries that your home has. And she said, well, but you don't understand. Our house has things that dwell in it and cause great trouble. We never sleep well, but here it was quiet, it was peaceful, and they don't live in your house. So I said, why don't you try to explain it to me? So she said, okay. And then she began to say that they're called evil spirits. And one of the Christian girls who was hearing the conversation said, oh yes, they cleansed the house. When we moved into our flat, we had special prayer that whoever lived there before or whatever happened in our house before would be fully cleansed and no evil presence would have any part in our home. And she explained it to Nadia and Nadia said, oh, that's wonderful. And then Yasmina began to tell her that's because Jesus has victory over evil and over evil spirits. And Nadia's response was, Oh, I need to know him right now. Tell me how, because I need victory over evil spirits. And before long, we had Nadia and her sister and some others praying, Lord, do this for us. We want to live where there's no evil spirits. We want to know the victory that Jesus gives. And she hardly knew anything about what Jesus had done, but because of the power of his presence and the power that there was someone who could overcome evil was such a strong desire in her life that she immediately gave her heart to Christ. Um, And we had this kind of experience with a number of various people because although Islam supposedly doesn't have a theology about this or really mentions it clearly, um, many of the people are deeply troubled by the presence of evil and don't know how that one can overcome evil. They also believe in prophets and it's obvious that, of course, that the main prophet that they feel that is the person to follow, as we were speaking about the Hadith and from the Quran, is Muhammad, that Muhammad is the final prophet, that there were many prophets previously and some of the patriarchs that we know, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, are called prophets, yet they are believed. Others named in the Quran as well. Even Jesus is called a prophet. So there's a doctrine and a theory that prophets are the one, but it's the final prophet who, in a way, counts. And all the other teachings of the other prophets has been either abrogated or superseded by the prophet Muhammad, who has come to bring the final message. And then, of course, there's the belief in the books, as we have mentioned this that the Quran is the most important thing that God gave and it's in Arabic. But sometimes in the belief of books, there's almost a fear. Recently, one woman told me she was afraid to touch the Bible. It might cause her some problem or reading it, fear attached to things that are not from the Quran. Many different little beliefs have come into their minds. And then, of course, there's the belief in heaven and hell. And everyone has a hope, but actually I've rarely heard anyone say, I'm sure that I'm going to heaven. And it's especially true when you're with families where there is a death or something, where someone is very ill, the fear of death is very apparent, that there is no assurance and no real trust that there is a way that you could know that God would take you to heaven. Quite often there's almost a fatalistic belief. Not everyone, but it's quite a number of people have expressed that God has destined some people to heaven and other people to hell. So it makes very little difference what you do in actual fact. If God has already said that you are going to hell, it's written for you that you will go to hell, no matter how good you might appear to be. But if you're going to heaven, it doesn't matter either whether it appears that you are not doing good works because god has destined you to heaven and that i find that a very tragic kind of fate fatalism that's often expressed with such strong feelings that their destiny is already fixed and they can't change it but also i've had few of the friends express to me if god didn't choose my relatives for heaven how strange that he would want to choose me and i would go to heaven and all the rest of them went to hell They often think about many questions that we can't answer and they're unanswerable um, that come up such as that. I remember Sarah after she became a Christian said I'm all the time thinking about where is my mother and I can't help her and God has allowed me to know Jesus and I feel so uh, privileged but I feel so sad that my family hasn't known him too. But beliefs and the Orthodoxy is not always the highlight of Islam. It's much more the practices. So we want to look at what people are doing in their practicing of the things. The creed and the belief in one God, as I briefly said, is mentioned in the baby's ear. So it matters very much that you say the creed, that you say it to the baby. And if you were to convert to Islam, they would have you say the creed. And it matters that you say the right words. But often what happens in many people, the name of God is a piece of jewelry and you wear it. The name of God is written on the walls of buildings. The name of God is printed, printed or painted on the lorry or on the back of the taxis. God's name becomes like a charm or a worker of magic and it's everywhere. And often it's put on beautiful plaques and hung up on the wall around the house. God's name as a feature in itself becomes the object rather than the personalized relationship to him. And so it also, when someone came in our house, they said to us, what are these Bible words on your wall? Do they help you have good health? Do they do some magic for you? Do they make you better when you're sick? So you become conscious of how you use the word of God among our Muslim friends that you don't portray it as a magic tool that can be used to cast spells or perform miracles. But prayer is the most active practice that most people engage in, although not everyone prays five times a day. But especially during Ramadan, people will pray. But women, of course, this is a very special time. Women need to be clean and not unclean They need to wear special clean clothing and wash and shower before praying and pray in a clean place. You can't pray in a place that has been soiled or made unclean. So it does make quite a necessity to change situations and to have a clean room. It often helps to have a prayer rug because the prayer rug can be kept clean and when you finish praying, you can hang it up and have it for when you need to pray again when i was working at the hospital as a chaplain we were asked to provide a prayer room for our muslim friends to pray when they wanted to have a prayer room at the hospital i found it quite difficult to find a place that wouldn't be unclean i wandered about the hospital with one of the employees of the hospital looking for a room that might serve as a purpose for a prayer room and we found that a room in one location, and then I asked him, what is next door to the room? What is above the room or underneath the room? And I found out that the morgue was under the room, dead people. So we couldn't have that for a prayer room because it might be contaminated. The other room we found was next to the blood bank. So there would be lots of things passing by all the time, which would also give a very unclean atmosphere to the prayer room. We finally found a room just inside the doors where it hadn't gotten far into the hospital. Then we had to provide a place to wash because you need to wash when you pray. And so we got the plumber to come and I explained very carefully to him that I had to have the sink very low because they need to wash their hands and their face up to their elbows and their feet. He looked at me very calmly and said, yes, dear, I'll put this in. I went back to doing something else and I returned and the sink was very high. I said, it won't work. How will they get their feet up here? Oh, he said, you shouldn't wash your feet in the sink. I said, but this is a prayer room. Please take it off and put it back down there where I explained to you this is a prayer room where they have to wash and we must wash our feet as well as all the other things. So again, finally I got the the sink just in the right place. Then I realized, oh dear, the cleaners who clean the hospital... They're not Muslims, and they don't take off their shoes when they walk in the prayer room. So I'm going to have to provide a special prayer mat so the prayer mat can be put down to pray and taken up so that the room is not always defiled by the cleaners. So we had lots of little catches to make the practical thing so that everything would work for the men or the women who wanted to pray while they were visiting someone at the hospital. I think it also thinking about women do pray at the mosque, but not as often as the men do. And again, if women want to go to the mosque, some of the mosques I've found in different places don't always provide proper facilities. So if there's only one room, the women would always be at the back of the room to pray. But in more modern, purposeful mosques, they have built places for the women, a special room. And the women would wear Of course, their same appropriate um, covering for praying. It's quite often a good thing to go and have a visit to a mosque if you can, but you sometimes need to make an appointment and arrange so they will be able to explain things to you and show you about. I think it's quite interesting for you to observe. There are no chairs, various things that differ that you might be surprised. And the structure and the things that happen, and where the women are, or what the women are doing, or what children are doing when they are at the mosque. It's quite interesting. Some of the mosques today have many purposes. They teach Arabic. They have many purpose rooms for weddings, for funerals, for all sorts of other things that are happening there as well today. Um, but do have a visit, and then have try to have a time of reflection afterwards to see how the impression and the things you learned about your visit the other thing that's very practical for women is the fast month it's a fast month so it might strike you if people aren't eating oh this must be an easy month women don't have to cook because after all we're not eating but it's not exactly like that because though they don't eat up eat from sun up sundown. In the evening after sundown, there's lots of eating and special foods and far more cooking and work to goes on during Ramadan. It actually is a very, very busy month for most of my women friends. And also before Ramadan starts, again we have this idea that we will clean and get ready to fast. It's kinda idea of preparation for fast. And we were thinking the other day and comparing it to Lent preparing to think of the month of Lent and preparing ourselves. How do we think about cleaning and thinking about our lives uh, the way our Muslim friends clean the house and have new dishes and everything fresh and ready so that there would be a kind of purity and cleanliness about the fast? And it's often the mom who does all these special things and does it. The other thing that is changed a lot over the years is the giving of the tithe, the giving of the 2.5%. When I was living in Tunisia, all the government workers, they took it from your salary. You just gave because the government took it for the mosque uh, from the salary of all government workers. And all the foreign government workers were given a piece of paper saying you can sign this paper if you don't agree about giving your 2.5%. But most of the time... The foreigners never got around to doing it, (laughs) Um, said the tithes. But it is of your money and possibly your gold, and it has various percentages when it's in an agricultural setting. But the pilgrimage is something that women often look forward to going, and that is easy for them to go, especially not if they have young children. But it's interesting, too, that she can wear her own clothing when she goes to Mecca, whereas men have a special garment. The woman can wear her own as long as it's modest clothing. But she mustn't go alone. A woman will go to Mecca with her husband or a guardian, never by herself. And when you come running to the Zamzan and the various things that the men do, the women may walk. And if she does all of the things, she will be called hedgerh. And so if you meet a Muslim woman called hajja Muhammad Fatima with that attached to her name, it probably means she's been to Mecca. I think the practices of the mother, she becomes in some sense the keeper of the faith. Quite often we were told if you reach the men, you're reaching the key person. But I've seen quite often it's the mother, the keeper who trains the children. She practices Islam. She trains the children to practice. She makes it possible for husband to fast and keep the practices. She promotes through the oral traditions and the Hadith. And the Islamic social values are formed and modeled by her. She controls the moral values of her children and also practices, perhaps, folk Islam or Sufism. The examples and the practices of Islam are perhaps more clearly seen in the habits of the woman rather than the men. How would all of this change if she become a Christian? Will she become the spiritual person, the keeper of the faith in the Christian family?